Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 197, The Grand Derangement. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'll be talking about an incident in Boston's history that falls somewhere on the moral scale between America's World War II internment camps and straight-up ethnic cleansing. One August morning, redcoats fanned out across the province, taking entire families into custody, burning farms and crops, and killing livestock. Falling in the middle of two centuries of intermittent warfare, this Grand Derangement, or Grand Derangement, didn't take place in Boston, or even in Massachusetts. But Boston did bear responsibility for this terrible act, and Boston would host the French Neutrals, the human byproducts of a purge we remember as the expulsion of the Acadians, who are confined in our city for nearly a decade. But before I talk about the Grand Derangement, or Great Upheaval, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is a classic, and it's a book that did more than any other work in English to draw attention to the plight of the Acadians, who were removed from their homeland in the Grand Derangement. As the curators of what we now know as the Longfellow House Washington's Headquarters National Historic Site point out, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow began writing The Idol and Hexameters, which would become Evangeline, in November of 1845, shortly after the birth of his second child. He was a respected professor who'd been teaching foreign languages at Harvard for almost 10 years, and a published author and translator fluent in many European languages, classical Greek and Latin. He'd recently married his second wife, the wealthy and beautiful Fanny Appleton, and the two were living in the impressive Cambridge mansion known locally as the Craigie House. Both Craigie House and Longfellow were relatively unknown at the time, but his epic poem Evangeline would help put both on the map. The Maine Historical Society describes how he settled on the expulsion of the Acadians as the topic for such an ambitious work. On April 5, 1840, Longfellow invited a few friends to dine at his rented rooms in Cambridge at the Craigie House. Nathaniel Hawthorne brought the Reverend Horace Connolly with him. At dinner, Connolly related a tale that he'd heard from a French-Canadian woman about an Acadian couple separated on their wedding day by the British expulsion of the French-speaking inhabitants of Nova Scotia. The bride-to-be wandered for years, trying to find her fiancé. Connolly had hoped Hawthorne would take the story and turn it into a novel, but he wasn't interested. Longfellow, however, was intrigued and reportedly called the story the best illustration of faithfulness and the consistency of woman that I've ever heard or read. He asked for Hawthorne's blessing to turn it into a poem. Longfellow wrote the poem in dactylic hexameter, which harkens back to Greek and Roman works, but he wrote it without a rhyming structure and he wrote it based on historical events that had been all but forgotten in his time. The National Park Service description says, Evangeline, a tale of Acadia, tells the story in unrhymed verse of the young and beautiful Evangeline and the noble Gabrielle Lajeunesse, childhood friends living in Grand Prix, Nova Scotia. The two are members of a peaceful farming community that embodies all the values of virtuous rural life held dear by the Victorian audience for whom the poem was written. They're engaged to be married, but are almost immediately separated when their entire community is forced into exile. Following the harrowing scene of their ejection, Evangeline spends the rest of her life traveling throughout North America, 
hoping to be reunited with her one true love. Only after many years of fruitless searching does Evangeline find Gabriel, probably actually Gabrielle, on his deathbed. After a moment of mutual recognition, Gabriel dies, held by Evangeline as she thanks God for bringing them together one last time. The poem concludes with the assurance that the two lovers are buried side by side, together for eternity, with Evangeline's devotion to be celebrated in the land of their birth forever. While I personally find it boring and hard to read today, in his own time, Longfellow's Evangeline was a cultural phenomenon. It went through six printings in the first six months, selling out time and time again and putting tens of thousands of copies into print. The poem's success cemented Longfellow's reputation and fortune, and it helped reintroduce the saga of the derangement into American popular history. And for this week's upcoming historical event, I'm featuring a brown bag lunch event from the Mass Historical Society. As we'll learn in just a few minutes, the historically French Acadians would be expelled from Nova Scotia in 1755 due in large part to the question of neutrality. They hesitated to swear an unconditional oath of loyalty to Britain, but also refused to leave their ancestral homeland that now belonged to the British. So when war broke out between the two nations, their loyalty seemed to lie with both and neither. Two decades after the crisis of loyalty among the Acadians, war would break out again. In her talk, Interpreting Neutrality During the American Revolution in the Northeast Borderlands, Darcy Stevens of the University of Maine will examine what neutrality looked like in the same region that had been racked so recently by the Grand Derangement. Here's how the MHS describes her talk. Rebellion, neutrality, and loyalty existed on a spectrum that inhabitants in the borderlands of Maine and Nova Scotia moved along throughout the war. Likewise, British and American officials' interpretations and acceptance of neutrality was malleable. Examining neutrals, rebels, loyalists, New England planters, Wabanaki, and Acadians in the borderlands reveals factors which impacted personal decisions and official policy about neutrality. Recognizing the complexity of neutrality restores agency to individuals and suggests a new terrain for assessing revolutionary actors as they were buffeted by wartime change. The virtual event begins at noon on August 20th. It's free, but advanced registration is required to get access to the connection details. We'll have the link you need in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 197. Before I start the show, I want to take a moment to say thank you to everyone who sponsors Hub History. A small group of dedicated listeners contribute $2, $5, or even $10 a month on Patreon. In doing so, they offset the costs of web hosting and security, podcast media hosting, transcription services, and all the things it takes to create even a small podcast like this one. If you're listening to this and you'd like to help out, just go to patreon.com hubhistory or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. A big thanks again to all of you. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Dr. John Thomas of Marshfield, Massachusetts, would rise to the rank of Brigadier General in the first year of the Revolutionary War. His division would take the lead in fortifying Dorchester Heights, where Henry Knox's artillery would then force the British to evacuate Boston. Unfortunately, the general would die of smallpox while commanding the American retreat from Canada, just over a year into the Revolution, his third war, 
Two decades before he died, Dr. Thomas answered Governor William Shirley's call to arms and joined a provincial regiment under Colonel John Winslow. It was in his role as regimental surgeon that he wrote this entry in his journal on August 11, 1755, 245 years ago this week. Colonel Monckton got 250 of the inhabitants into Fort Cumberland and confined them. Major Bourne, with 150 men, guarded the greater part of them to Fort Lawrence, where they are confined. Major Preble, with 200 men, was ordered to Tantamar. Captain Perry, with 100 men, was ordered to Point Abbott and O'Lake in order to bring in what they could find. Captain Osgood took a small party as they were driving off their cattle and brought them to the camp. Captain Lewis of the Rangers marched this morning with a party of our men to some other villages 150 miles distant. Acting on secret orders from the royal governor of the province, Charles Lawrence, the Redcoats and militia under Winslow staged a carefully concerted attack across the colony of Nova Scotia on a Monday morning in summer. Longtime residents of the colony were rounded up and confined in forts, barns, and churches. Some reports say that the action began the day before, with Redcoats surprising the residents during church services and locking them inside. But that might also be a misreading of the accounts of what happened the next day. Certainly the roundup continued for at least two weeks after August 11th, with Dr. Thomas writing on August 25th, 40 men returned upon party that have been out with Captain Willard, and they brought in several prisoners, burned several fine villages. Though their ancestors had colonized the province over a century and a half before, the political grounds had shifted beneath the feet of the people who called themselves Acadians. Before Nova Scotia was Nova Scotia, it was a French colony known as Acadia. French trappers and fur traders settled in the region as early as 1607. And, while I'm far from an expert in this area, the French manner of dealing with indigenous peoples in areas they colonized was very different from the British style. From a very early era, the local Mi'kmaq and Maliseet nations considered the French allies. Not long after the colony was founded, British colonists began settling in Plymouth, Boston, and up the coast of what's now Maine. This soon led to conflict with their neighbors to the north, as the French believed Acadia encompassed all of modern Nova Scotia, as well as much of New Brunswick and Maine, which was then the eastern counties of Massachusetts. The friction between the Catholic French colonies to the north and the Protestant English colonies south of them would lead to about a hundred years of war, and the border between what were then Massachusetts and Acadia wouldn't be fully settled until it was negotiated by John Adams as part of the treaty ending the Revolutionary War, by President John Quincy Adams in 1827, and finally by Daniel Webster in 1842. In past episodes, we've discussed some of the conflicts between French Canada, including Acadia, and British New England. There were skirmishes as early as 1610, but the contest between Massachusetts and Acadia got underway for real in 1689, as part of King William's War. Like all but the last of these colonial conflicts between the French and English, King William's War began as an offshoot of a war between the French and English back in Europe. In episode 146, we described how Sir William Phipps led a disastrous 1690 invasion from Boston to Quebec as part of that war. Queen Anne's War came in 1702, which was followed by Father Rail's War in 1722. Then came King George's War in 1744, which we discussed at length in episode 132, which was about a ragtag Massachusetts Army's shocking victory 
over the French fortress Louisbourg. And Father Le Loutre's war came in 1749. Finally, 1754 brought the Seven Years' War, which you probably learned about in history class as the French and Indian War. This was the first of these many colonial wars to have been sparked in the colonies, then carried back to Europe, and eventually fought there, along with East Asia, India, Africa, and North and South America. France was forced to concede Acadia to Britain in the Treaty of Utrecht in 1713, ending Queen Anne's War. However, the Acadians weren't ready to concede their loyalty to the French Empire, and they'd provide aid to the French and their Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Wabanaki allies in the wars to come. After young George Washington accidentally started a global war by ambushing and massacring a French patrol in Pennsylvania, he witnessed their deaths firsthand, the first months of the Seven Years' War went poorly for the British who were driven out of the frontier in New York, Pennsylvania, and western Virginia. The only ray of sunshine was a victory over a French fort near what's today the border between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Taking this fort left the Fortress Louisbourg cut off, leading to its eventual surrender. It would also leave the Acadian population of what had become Nova Scotia on uncertain ground. Since 1710, the British royal government in Nova Scotia had been pressuring the Acadian population to sign loyalty oaths, and they'd been refusing. If they would sign oaths, they'd be considered loyal subjects of the British king. If they would not, and they mostly didn't, they were supposed to be considered neutral. They would not fight for England, but they also could not fight for France. The issue of oaths had become one of the factors that sparked the 1749 war, and it continued to stoke tensions in 1755. After the supply lines to Louisbourg were cut off, the only remaining support the fortress could call on would be the nearby Acadian population, so the British army moved to cut off that potential threat. Since General Braddock had been killed on the Pennsylvania frontier a few weeks before, Massachusetts Governor William Shirley was acting as commander-in-chief of British forces in North America. So it was technically under his auspices that Nova Scotia Governor Charles Lawrence issued the first order of expulsion on August 11, 1755. His order describes the operation as sending away the French inhabitants and clearing the whole country of such bad subjects. Yale professor John Farragher tied this plan more explicitly to the Shirley administration. It had been prepared by provincial surveyor Charles Morris, a Massachusetts native and a protege of Governor William Shirley. Morris's thinking echoed that of his mentor. The Acadians controlled all the best land in the province, he argued, and a program of Protestant colonization would require the confiscation of their farms and the expulsion of the Acadians themselves. Without their removal, he wrote in one of several official reports he authored on the Acadian problem, I am sure it would be impossible any large number of Protestants can ever be settled in the country. Morris urged a military campaign to eliminate once and for all the Acadian presence. They are at all adventures to be rooted out, and the most effectual way is to destroy all these settlements by burning down all their houses, cutting the dikes, and destroying all the grain now growing. Governor Lawrence would hire a fleet of ships from Boston to transport the Acadians out of the colony, and his August 11th order gave explicit instructions on making sure they were all on board. You will use all the means proper and necessary for collecting the people together so as to get them on board. 
If you find that fair means will not do with them, you must proceed by the most vigorous measures possible, not only in compelling them to embark, but in depriving those who shall escape of all means of shelter or support by burning their houses and destroying everything that may afford them the means of subsistence in the country. And if you have not force sufficient to perform this service, Colonel Winslow at Mines will upon your application send you a proper reinforcement. As Colonel Winslow, Dr. Thomas, and the rest of the troops in Nova Scotia carried out these orders, rounding up colonists and burning their farms and crops, word spread through Boston about the ongoing operation. In his book on the French neutrals in Massachusetts, Pierre Beliveau describes how on August 16, 1755, in the House of Representatives, a member warned the assembly that Thomas Hancock, Boston's leading merchant, had a dispatch from Halifax bearing news of concern to Massachusetts. The Speaker of the House summoned the merchant. Thomas Hancock divulged to the House that the governor of Nova Scotia was about to remove the neutral French from Nova Scotia and ship them into the English colonies. Thomas Hancock, of course, was the wealthy Boston merchant who would leave his fortune to his nephew and founding father, John Hancock. What Beliveau doesn't explicitly point out in this passage is that Thomas Hancock had this information because he owned the fleet of ships that would remove the first wave of Acadians from their homeland. His account continues, The House voted that four members, with such as the governor's council should appoint, be a joint committee to sit that day, consider, and propose some proper method for receiving a number of the French neutrals to be deported from Acadia. By proroguing, the Great and General Court delayed further consideration until the southbound transports put into Boston for refuge from a storm. That stormy day would come in November. For months, the Massachusetts militia and their red-coat allies crisscrossed Nova Scotia, eventually rounding up about 7,000 Acadians, out of a total population that probably numbered close to 20,000. The rest fled from the province into areas still under French control, went into the hills with their Mi'kmaq allies, or formed guerrilla bands to resist the British. Though raids and roundups would continue for years, this first phase of the derangement was complete by October. On October 11, 1755, Dr. John Thomas wrote in his diary, Stormy day. Captain Doggett sailed for Boston. The last party of French prisoners were sent on board the vessel in order to be sent out of the province. Writing in the William and Mary Quarterly in 1968, Richard Lowe described what happened when six of these ships blew into Boston Harbor after a stormy crossing. The first group of Acadians to reach the Bay Province sailed into Boston Harbor from Nova Scotia early in November 1755. Notified of the ship's arrival, the General Court formed a committee on November 5th to examine the condition of the French and make recommendations about what should be done. After boarding the transports and searching, the legislators reported that six vessels, loaded with 1,077 Acadians, bound for points south of Massachusetts, had put into the harbor for repairs. The committee observed that the transports were too much crowded, their allowance of provisions short, being one pound of beef, five pounds of flour, and two pounds of bread per man per week, and too small a quantity to that allowance to carry them to the ports they are bound to especially at this season of the year, and their water is very bad. According to Governor Lawrence's expulsion order, the Acadian prisoners were to be divided evenly between Philadelphia, 
New York, Connecticut, and Boston. This first group was destined to another port, but it gave the people of Boston a preview of what was coming in just a few weeks. Having seen the hardships the Acadians were bearing, past Speaker of the Massachusetts House and future Royal Governor of Massachusetts Thomas Hutchinson developed a strong sense of sympathy for their plight. When the first party meant to dwell in Boston for the long haul arrived, Hutchinson would be one of their strongest advocates. In his much later History of the Bay Province, he described their initial arrival. About a thousand of them arrived in Boston just at the beginning of winter, crowded almost to death. His account also provides historical support for Longfellow's story of Evangeline. In several instances, the husbands who happened to be at a distance from home were put on board vessels bound to one of the English colonies, and their wives and children on board other vessels, bound to other colonies remote from the first. Five or six families were brought to Boston, the wife and children only, without the husbands and fathers, who by advertisements in the newspapers came from Philadelphia to Boston, being till then utterly uncertain what had become of their families. One of the most sensible of them, describing his case, said, It was the hardest which had happened since our Savior was upon earth. In researching this episode, I saw a lot of assertions in later publications that Governor Shirley wouldn't allow the refugees to disembark their ships, instead keeping them waiting on Boston Harbor through the winter months until half of them died. While this was frequently repeated, I didn't find confirmation in primary sources or in publications that I trust. Instead, Pierre Beliveau offered this description of the arrival of the neutral refugees in Boston. Over a period of nine months, ending in August 1756, Massachusetts received 1,189 French neutrals. Almost all arrived in some 200 family groups, for effort had been made to keep these families intact. Throughout the exile, the province permitted entry of individuals to join families. Such late entries, not more than a dozen in tally, usually were young men, sometimes husbands and fathers. From the moment they arrived in the Bay Colony, Thomas Hutchinson would prove to be the Acadian's strongest defender. Richard Lowe's article details how Hutchinson cared for individual refugees and tried to find justice for the entire group. Late in November, the ship Seaflower put into Boston with 206 additional exiles. When he heard of the new arrival, Thomas Hutchinson, a member of the council who proved to be the Acadians' most valuable friend in Massachusetts, went down to the docks to investigate. On board, he found the widow Benoit, who'd been ill for more than two weeks without medical attention. He promptly took the woman with her four sons and a grandson to his own house in Boston. There, he provided medical care, food, and shelter for the weary group, but the ailing widow died within a few days. Hutchinson continued to house and care for her family. A few months later, when the sheriff of Suffolk County attempted to place the children in another part of the province, Hutchinson secured the permission of the legislature to keep them under his care. Hutchinson's humane spirit was not satisfied with housing only one family, however. He wanted somehow to minister to all the Acadians in Massachusetts. Pitying the unfortunates, he prepared a petition to the British government, praying that all exiles be permitted to return to their homes in Nova Scotia. If that were denied, he asked that they be compensated for the losses they'd suffered in the expulsion. 
Moreover, he expressed his willingness to put the petition into the hands of a proper person in England to solicit their cause. The neutral leaders considered Hutchinson's petition, but in the end rejected it, because they feared they might lose favor in France if they requested or received aid from the British king. They preferred to remain in Massachusetts for the moment, and hope for a French victory in North America. If they weren't going to get sent back to Nova Scotia, the Acadians would have to be distributed among many towns in Massachusetts. They had arrived at the onset of winter, a difficult season in New England in 1755. And they'd arrived without any way to support themselves, as Lowe explains. The exiles had not been permitted to bring property, livestock, tools, furniture, or goods or estate of any kind with them. The court did not see how the French could be employed in the winter when even the English colonists were out of work. As a result, they were completely dependent on the province, and the legislature had no choice but to act for humanity's sake. At that time, it was common for towns to provide a subsistence living for the so-called worthy poor. If a longtime resident of a town with a good reputation should fall on hard times for some reason that wasn't their fault, the town could vote to provide relief. On the other hand, if an impoverished transient showed up in town, or if a longtime resident lost their means because they were considered a drunk, or they simply had a reputation for laziness, the town could vote to warn them out. In that case, they'd essentially be forced to leave town or starve. In the case of the Acadian refugees, the provincial government would force towns to take in entire families, who are not only strangers, but sworn enemies for generations. They were distributed to the towns in full knowledge that they had no way to support themselves, rendering the old system moot. In his history, Thomas Hutchinson describes the compromise that was reached to allow the neutrals to come ashore. No provision was made in case government should refuse to take them under its care. At length, the assembly passed a resolve that they should all be permitted to land and that they should be sent to such towns as a committee appointed for that purpose should think fit. And a law of the province was passed to authorize justices of the peace and overseers of the poor to employ them in labor, bind them out to service, and in general provide for their support in like manner, as if they'd been indigent inhabitants of the province. Colonial officials would spend much of the next five years writing letters to their allies in London and to the colonial government in Nova Scotia, trying to get reimbursed for the expenses the colony incurred in caring for the Acadians who weren't bound out to service or otherwise generating revenue. In the meantime, the Acadians were trying to come to terms with what it meant to be a French neutral in New England during wartime. In the early months of their confinement, they tried to reassemble scattered families and find ways to support themselves. For example, the selectmen of Boston would write to their neighbors in Dorchester in an attempt to reunite the Leno family. As Joseph Leno, one of the French neutrals, is assigned to your town, who has a wife and two children who are desirous of being with their husband and father, we suppose it will not be disagreeable to you. If, upon their going to you, it should be an objection that they might be a charge in some hereafter, please to let us know immediately and we will then either engage to defray the same, or otherwise will permit them to return to this town again. We are, sir, your humble servants, the selectmen. However, concerns besides family separation would become pressing in the coming months and years. 
As the Seven Years' War heated up, the people of Massachusetts began to worry about a potential fifth column living in towns and villages across the province. The Acadians began to experience increasing levels of surveillance and decreasing levels of personal liberty, as their rights were curtailed both by custom and by law. Less than a year after their arrival in the province, the Massachusetts legislature passed an order restraining the French neutrals from traveling about. It being found by experience that the frequent traveling and passing from town to town of many of the French people, lately dispersed through this province by order of the general court, hath been attended with considerable inconveniences, and may be introductive of much greater, it is therefore ordered and directed that the selectmen and overseers of the poor be very careful to keep the French people from idling and wandering about, and none of that people shall be permitted to travel from town to town without leave first obtained from two of the selectmen or overseers of the poor where they respectively belong of, which such people shall produce certificate of, or otherwise they shall be stopped and turned back by any two English householders, who are hereby empowered to examine and stop or return them, if they have not excuse in writing, as above. The fortunes of the Acadians in Massachusetts would fall and rise inversely with the tides of war. As the British army enjoyed more success on the battlefield, the neutrals around Boston would enjoy more liberty. As the French forces surged, the living conditions of the neutrals fell, as Richard Lowe describes. In 1757, Thomas Pownall, the new governor, tightened security even further. He ordered the sheriffs on August 13th to keep strict watch over the French neutrals in their districts. Fort William Henry in New York had just surrendered to French forces, and Fort Edward was under attack. Pownall apparently feared subversion from within, or attempted escape by the Acadians. When the governor received a letter in October 1759 from General Wolfe, complaining that Massachusetts Acadians, as well as letters from Massachusetts exiles, were turning up in Canada, the legislature ordered town officials to watch their charges more carefully and to submit perfected lists of the names of the Acadians in their towns, giving their ages and capacities for labor. As the war dragged on, thousands more Acadians would be deported, and most of them were sent farther from home than Massachusetts, to the Carolinas, to Georgia, and to Britain itself. When the war ended, and the Treaty of Paris formally granted all of Canada to the British, some Acadians would be repatriated to France a nation that they'd only heard about from their grandparents or read about in history books. A handful of these would return to North America, settling in a region called Louisiana that the French had just ceded to Spain, where the word Acadian would slowly evolve into a Cajun identity. After the war ended, the British government issued an order in July 1764 that formally allowed the Acadians in Massachusetts to return to former French territories, including Nova Scotia. However, in the meantime, thousands of families from Massachusetts and elsewhere had taken over their former homes. Known as the New England Planters, these families settled the farmlands that the Acadians had been forced to abandon, leaving most of the neutrals with no homes to return to. Now that they were no longer viewed as a foreign threat, Acadian families in Massachusetts had to decide whether to live freely in the province where they'd been captives for nearly a decade or whether they should leave and take their chances in lands they'd never seen before. One of the key factors in convincing many families to flee to faraway provinces like Quebec was religion. 
Thomas Hutchinson explains how the ancient New England anti-Catholic prejudice affected the Acadians in general, and one family in particular. The people of New England had more just notions of toleration than their ancestors, and no exception was taken to their prayers and their families, in their own way, which I believe they practiced in general, and sometimes they assembled several families together. But the people would upon no terms have consented to the public exercise of religious worship by Roman Catholic priests. A law remained unrepealed, though it is to be hoped it would never have been executed, which made it a capital offense in such persons to come within the province. It was suspected that some such were among them in disguise, but it is not probable that any ventured. One of the most noted families, when they were dissuaded from removing to Quebec, lest they should suffer more hardship from the French there than they had done from the English, acknowledged that they expected it, but they had it not in their power since they left their country to confess and be absolved of their sins, and the hazard of dying in such a state distressed them more than the fear of temporal sufferings. Acadian families across the province wrestled with these considerations and as the 1760s progressed, more and more would leave the province. Those who weren't attracted to Quebec by the prospect of finally worshipping freely were driven from Massachusetts by an outbreak of smallpox in 1764 that badly affected the remaining Acadians. In May of that year, the selectmen of Boston noted, The selectmen having received information that a number of those people called French neutrals had come from neighboring towns to this in order to receive the smallpox inoculation, agreed to visit those persons. Having performed that service, they found three of the neutrals at Mrs. Walcott's who'd been in the town 48 hours, being sent from Cambridge by Brigantine Brattle. One of them was broke out with smallpox, the others complaining. They also went into Mr. Chapman's at the south part of the town, where they found one Buckley belonging to Colchester in Connecticut, and that he'd been inoculated eight days under these circumstances. And considering the great infection still in town, it was not thought proper to take any method for their removal. Another note from the selectmen a few weeks later gives evidence that the pox was spreading beyond just Boston. Colonel Williams of Roxbury appeared and acquainted the selectmen that one Francis Daigle, a French neutral belonging to Boston, was broke out with the smallpox. At the same time praying that as that town was not infected, they would consent to her being removed to this place. By the late 1760s, the trickle of Acadians out of the province had become a flood. Historian Lowe describes where the Acadians went and why they didn't have a notable presence in Massachusetts as our province hurtled toward war with the mother country in the 1770s. In 1766, at the invitation of Governor James Murray of Quebec, the main body of Massachusetts Acadians began to depart for French Canada where Roman Catholic priests were allowed all the privileges accorded Protestant ministers. In early September 1766, the Quebec Gazette reported the arrival of two shiploads of neutrals from Boston. In March 1767, the Massachusetts legislature, after repeated requests from those exiles still in the province, adopted a law providing for the transportation of the remaining Acadians to Canada. Those who could pay for their own removal were to do so and those who could not would be moved at province expense. In addition, several Massachusetts towns voluntarily contributed traveling money to their neutrals. By 1775, Quebec had received about 1,500 Acadians from New England, many from Massachusetts, where most of the exiles had lived. 
Some neutrals traveled over land from Massachusetts back to their homeland, Acadia, where they were given land once they had taken the oath of allegiance to the British crown. By the time of the revolution, only a handful of the Acadians remained in the province, and these were assimilated after a few generations. To learn more about the Grand Derangement, or the Great Upheaval, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 197. I'll have links to the book by Pierre Beliveau and paper by Richard Lowe that I relied so heavily on in preparing this episode. I'll also link to Dr. John Thomas's diary recording his experience and other primary sources about the initial expulsion of the Acadians. I'll link to financial records showing how deeply involved in the expulsion John Hancock's uncle Thomas was, as well as two volumes of Massachusetts town records from this period, filled with notes about how the refugees were distributed among the towns, the work they were forced to do, and the times they were supported by the colony. And of course, I'll have information about our upcoming event, as well as Longfellow's Evangeline, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners. 